Boy, I love that. That's all, it says it all. I think we could all go home. Um, I am so thrilled to be here. It is a great honor for this California boy to be in a space like this. So thank you all so much for the opportunity to speak to you this morning. Um, when I first had the idea for this particular talk and ran it by my partner, Scott, over there, he looked a little confused like the RCA Victor dog or something with his head cocked sideways. And so I explained it to him again. And all he said was, well, it sounds a little heady to me, Michael, but I'm sure you'll bring it down into some human terms and it'll be just great. So with that vote of confidence, I find myself here keeping my eye peeled for the head cocked sideways. But the way I see it, this is about as basic as it gets. What do we believe? What do we hold to be true? What's the primary lens through which we view the bigger questions about life and death? What's it all about, Alfie? As Unitarian Universalists, we tend to keep those questions at the forefront, encouraging our own individual and collective exploration for answers, while other faith traditions offer up answers and demand, in varying degrees, adherence to that point of view. What I have found in my work as an oncology chaplain, though, is that we may think we know what we believe, but when it gets right down to it, when faced with a crisis like critical illness or death, Often, all bets are off where the theology really meets the road. I have been with dozens of devout Christians, Catholics, who, would, who when faced with the end will admit, you know, I don't know what I believe about what comes next. I'd like to believe in heaven, sure, but I really don't know. Likewise, I've been with plenty of secular folks who when faced with a finish line will admit, you know what, I just can't accept that this is the whole story. They will often share with me mystical experiences they've had that they claim perhaps that they've never shared with anyone. Maybe they just didn't have a context in which to hold such an experience. Maybe that experience just didn't tow the secular party line. Sometimes faith systems remain solid, complete, intact. Sometimes they collapse altogether. And sometimes they crack open just a wee bit, allowing room for an often disquieting visitor doubt. And that's the intersection I wanted to explore this morning. Because just as patients have to walk their journey and hold these enormous questions of what do I really believe now, so it is that I have to hold those questions as I walk beside them. And my hope and invitation to you is that some of these reflections will resonate and reverberate, even though crisis may be at bay for now. There are a handful of theological themes that I see come up again and again from folks all over the belief map, from secular humanists to fundamentalist Christians and everyone in between. And as I explore these, I do see the irony that I'm even attempting to distill and refine hundreds of personal stories to come up with something vaguely universal when, if anything, I deplore the idea that there even is such a thing as a singular universal truth, but there you are. Still. I'd like to believe there may be something universally human here that has room in it for contradiction and doubt. John Patrick Shanley, the playwright of the Pulitzer Prize winning play and the film of the same name called Doubt, says that the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. And certainty is certainly one of those themes that I see come up again and again. I know this to be true. I know that God loves me and hears my prayer and there's a place for me in heaven. 
I know that God doesn't give us any more than we can handle. I know that God helps those who help themselves. You know, that's often attributed to the Bible, but actually that's Benjamin Franklin. Or in a different vein, I know that my thought creates my reality and that nothing happens by accident, that there's a reason for everything. Or in a different vein, I know that there is no truth beyond science. There's no law beyond nature. There is no reality beyond this one. The fact is, using illustrations from some of my patients' lives, I could make a very good case for the truth or falsehood of any one of those statements of belief. Prove them or disprove them, if you will. But to what end? It's not a court case. Reverend Judith Meyer, who retired from our pulpit in Santa Monica a number of years ago, used to begin every Sunday by reminding us that we're here to practice what it means to be human. And to me, there is something fundamentally human in the way that we crave and pursue and take comfort in our certainty, only while we often miss the magic of its collapse. When I first walked into Stan's room, he was alone in the bed. He had an oxygen mask on. I introduced myself as the chaplain, and he waved me away right away. But he lifted up his mask long enough just to spit out as quickly and precisely as possible in a near single breath, I know the Lord Jesus Christ is my personal Savior, and by his stripes I shall be healed. Thank you so much for coming. And the mask went back on. <laughs> Stan's a perfect example of what I've come to call shrink wrap theology. I've seen dozens like him, and not just religious folks, secular too. It's as if he's wrapped so tightly in his certainty in his theology that he remains as impenetrable as a new CD. <laughs> Some people might say that his faith is so solid and strong that he's, he'll be fine, he's just doing great, and that may be, mechanically speaking anyway, and if everything goes well. But one could also say that the full breadth and dimension of his experience and his journey through cancer is lost on him. He remains impervious to it. There is no room whatsoever for exploration, for awakening, for deepening, for revelation, for growth. And I could also hear a certain distress in the way that he clung to those words, much in the same way that there was distress in his body clinging to the oxygen coming from that mask almost as if that theology is another kind of mask. Javier was the kind of a patient who, once I introduced myself as the chaplain, he kind of wanted to show off for me a little bit, to show me how spiritually solid he was. So he was telling me about his church community, and he was showing me his Bible and his books and his CDs. He had grown up in a large Latino Catholic family, but as an adult, he found a greater connection in a more evangelical Christian community. So he used a lot of language like, as the head of the house, I want to walk with the Lord, and I want to surround myself with the right kinds of people. My brother is just not right with the Lord, no matter what I say to him, so I can't be around him anymore. His faith was in his certainty. Still, I could hear a certain distress in the way he spoke those words, and I asked him to tell me more about what he meant by the right kinds of people. And I asked him to consider if he thought Jesus would make such distinctions. That opened the conversation wide. And then we could really talk about his judgments of others and more importantly, his judgments about himself. And 45 minutes later, the truth could finally come seeping out in his tears beneath his mask of certainty when he said, to tell you the truth, Michael, I don't think I'm gonna make it and I don't deserve this.
Wow, it was like this enormous exhale after holding his breath for as long as humanly possible. And what was left was room to breathe in another kind of air that I would just as soon call grace to be who he is, a scared human being with far more questions than answers. Deserving, it is such a loaded word, and yet it is inextricably linked to all these other theological themes that I see come up again and again. Linked to deserving is the idea that I'm special. I'm special, and therefore I'm entitled to good things, to success, health, success, whatever it is, wealth. Uh, closely linked to deserving, but in slight contrast to being special, is the idea that good things have to be earned, that somehow I have to prove myself worthy in order to have success, wealth, happiness, whatever it is. And while that idea may seem to be shot through the lens of maybe a Protestant work ethic, the idea is also strong in New Age thought, it's certainly strong in Eastern religion, and it's certainly strong in American secular humanist tradition in the way that we revere self-made men and women. They earned it, by golly. Closely linked to earning is the idea that I have some power or control here to affect my circumstances, to affect outcomes. That if I can do, be, say, think, pray, or eat the right thing, then somehow I'll be okay, I'll be safe, I'll be fine. All of these ideas are huddled under the same umbrella of belief that would say there is a force for goodness and justice and fairness in the world. Now, I'm not here to say that any of these are the correct beliefs and should be encouraged, or that they're somehow misguided beliefs and should be avoided, or that I don't hold them myself, given the day that you ask me. I only mean to share that I see them revealed again and again in times of crisis from folks all over the belief map, even as in Javier's case when initially there are proclamations to something quite different. Ultimately, I don't deserve this, was his truth. I also mean to share that I think these ideas can trip us up, or more precisely, by how tightly we hold on to them. Phyllis was the embodiment of I am special. It was the end of the day on a Friday. I was pretty darn pooped and ready to go home, but there was one newly admitted patient that I hadn't seen, so I thought I would just go in and introduce myself before the weekend. I barely got out, hi, I'm Michael, I'm the chaplain, I wanted to say hi. Oh, yes, please, chaplain, the Lord has truly answered my prayers in sending you here to me today. Come in and sit down. Oh, brother, how much theology is reflected in that sentence alone? Well, Phyllis's spiritual crisis had not so much to do with her diagnosis or her prognosis so much as it had to do with her vocabulary. On January 1st of that year, she and her husband sat down to make a list of expectations they had of God. She felt uneasy with the word at first and said so, but her husband assured her, Phyllis, God has expectations of us and so we can have expectations of God. And so they made a list of things like success and wealth and all the rest. But now she wondered if she had offended God in using that word and that's why she has leukemia. You see, Michael, my leukemia is 100% curable, so I think maybe God was just trying to give me a slap on the wrist, a little wake-up call. I don't know, though. What if my leukemia were incurable? I guess I'd think then it was a punishment. I'm not sure. What do you think? I want to go home, is what I think. 
Phyllis went on to tell me how God had given her cuts in line at the supermarket and had found her parking places right by the front door of an impossibly crowded Costco parking lot. Michael, you want to know what prayer I pray every day? I say, God, show me your favor today. I just hate wishy-washy prayers, don't you? Why should God show you his favor, I asked? Because I'm his precious child. What about the last person in line at the supermarket? Was he God's precious child? He may be, but God has his favorites. Jesus had his favorites. There's a hierarchy in heaven. It says so in the Bible. I want to be at the top. There it is. I'm special. As much of a cartoon as Phyllis may seem to be on the surface, her suffering was very real. And how many of us feel special? I do, don't you? I'm a good guy. I'm a good friend. I eat right. I exercise. I give a lot of my life away in service. What if none of us are special? Or what if we all are? That second theme that would say that good things have to be earned, that I have to prove myself worthy, that idea is also kind of intertwined with the idea that it's never available to us now in this moment. It's over there. And I have to earn my way there, that somehow there's this place called success, health, happiness, and love. I'm going to work there, and when I get there, I'm never going to move. I'll be okay when? If I could just get this job, if I could just get that apartment, if I could just love that person, if they would just love me back, if that person would just go away, if I just had a thousand more dollars, if I could just get through this chemo, then I'll be okay. So many belief systems, secular and religious alike, are based on this idea that it's never available to us now here. It's over there, and I have to earn it. Ruth was this wonderfully wise and soulful older woman with deep roots in her Eastern European Jewish ancestry. She was watching the love of her life, her husband of over 60 years, slowly slip away over the course of many weeks in the hospital. Michael, she said, I thought I did life the right way. I married the man I loved. We worked hard. We had three beautiful children. We gave them wonderful educations. Now they have wonderful careers and families of their own. We were always looking forward to our golden years as a kind of a reward. And now look, to tell you the truth, I'm going to be 82 years old, and I'm still waiting for the party to begin. Myra was this great gal in her mid-50s. She had leukemia, and she had a pretty darn colorful past, a not-so-wonderful absent husband, and a very thick Long Island accent. I liked her very much. <laughs> After we got uh, acquainted over about a half an hour or so, I asked her if any kind of faith or spirituality were part of the equation for her. Oh, God, she said, well, I was raised a Catholic, but I don't know. Church, it was just never kind of my thing. I mean, I believe in God and everything, but church, I don't think so. But the crazy thing, then I got sick, and I thought, I should pray or something. But then it seemed kind of hypocritical to go to God now when I hadn't gone to God in all these years. You know what I'm saying? And then last week I was across the street getting my chemo in the clinic and there was this Latino man there who was praying up a storm with the pictures of the saints and the rosary beads and all of that. And I thought, I can't compete with that. <laughs> As if there's only so much love, 
grace, healing power, whatever you want to call it, to go around, and she wasn't entitled to any because she hadn't done it the right way. She hadn't earned it. Alex was this very tough, smart young man, 28 years old, with this native street smarts kind of intelligence. Very turbulent background. Grew up in the Central Valley of California. History with gangs, a brother in prison. He was a semi-pro bare-fisted boxer. I didn't even know such a thing existed. When I went into his room, the only personal artifact that was there was a tattered picture of himself bloodied in the boxing ring, taped to the wall. I didn't know what it was, and he said, it's me. It's the only time I ever lost a fight. I said, why would you want that picture up? I want to be sure it never happens again. He had this amazing capacity for reflection and paradox and complex thinking. He said, Michael, sure, I could pray to God to heal me, but why should he? Why me? Why not the guy down the hall? Why not the kids downstairs on the third floor? Why not everybody? Isn't prayer kind of judging God, saying things should be different than they are? Maybe we're just supposed to accept. But then the voice of the champion let himself be heard. Michael, you've watched hundreds of people go through these stem cell transplants. I want to know the best way to do this. I want to be the best patient possible. What's the best way to do this? As if there is such a way. But there's that other theme. I have some power or control here to affect the outcome. I don't mean to imply that our perspective, our point of view, our frame of mind can't affect the way that we experience our journey. But when it comes to the bigger questions of who gets sick, who doesn't, who dies, who doesn't, it's often just out of our hands, and Alex did not want to accept that. He was in the hospital for the better part of a year, in and out. His, about a month in, his mom came to stay with him, and she stayed day and night. She was his rock, his coach, his warrior. She was also a fundamentalist Christian, and so she saw to it right away that her boy got back right with the Lord and that ended our wonderfully complex conversations. All of that doubt and confusion, that's the devil talking, she would say. This presented a particular challenge for, for me because I harshly judged that black and white kind of thinking. And yet that simplistic worldview seemed to bring Alex some comfort. And then I found myself wondering, well, is comfort the whole point here? What about growth and awakening and enlightenment? I don't know. But one thing became very clear, black and white, in fact. Nothing anyone could say or do or pray or affirm or think could alter the fact that the disease would take his life at 28. Powerless. Oh, well, everything happens for a reason, right? Maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Everything works out for the best. I believe in the power of light over darkness. I believe in the power of loving God. I know all of us have heard such statements of faith, maybe even coming out of our own mouths. I know I have. Even though I, like any one of you, but no one more than Alex, could make a fairly airtight case for just how untrue such statements can be. And yet the common human journey does seem to reach for and expect and yearn for some sense of goodness and justice and fairness, no matter how impossible to define or no matter how unattainable. A number of years ago, I worked for a hospice, and there I met Loretta. She was the niece of the patient, and she was his caregiver, and she had a definitive opinion about everything. 
and she wasn't a bit shy about sharing it. Michael, you want to know what prayer I pray every day? I say, God, I know we're all your children, that we are all brothers and sisters under the skin. But God, some of your children, they need a spanking. They do. Wouldn't you like to see that, Michael? Wouldn't you like to see God just reach up from heaven and grab up Mr. George W. Bush by the britches and go pam, pam, pam like that on the booty and say, you go sit over there now, think about what you've done. <laughs> I would. I think it should be on TV. <laughs> I'm not making it up. And yes, Loretta made me laugh. And yes, there's a hint of vindictiveness in her prayer. But there is also the struggle to claim the promise of justice. It is one of our foundational UU principles. Are we so different? Carlos was this beautiful, beautiful young man, 30 years old, going under the tortures of an allogenic stem cell transplant, in his case, given chance of success at 20%. Toward the end, Without a trace of victimhood or self-pity, he whispers to me, Michael, if it's my time, it's my time, I guess. That's one way I look at it. What's the other way, Carlos? To have faith, he said. In what? Well, that God will heal me. And we looked at how maybe those aren't either-or statements. How might, if it's my time, it's my time, be a statement of deep faith? Is our faith only to be measured by our attachment to outcomes? To me, it is a statement of a much deeper kind of a faith that lets us to step off into the unknown without any such attachment to outcomes or even to our notions of goodness and justice and fairness. In the end, maybe I am special. Maybe I have earned it, by golly. Maybe everything does happen for a reason and I can affect my circumstances with my thought, my prayer, my meditation or affirmation. Maybe it is all good. I did not set out to articulate the most correct theology as if such a thing exists. In the end, I don't think it is so much about what our theology is so much as it is about our relationship to it. Can I move into a deeper experience of peace of mind and heart, of true communion, through a fascination with the mystery that is greater than my need for some solid, singular truth? Even if everything I've held to be true my whole life, when it gets right down to it, where the theology meets the road, turns out not to be true at all. Or even if it does, can I be willing for my certainty to collapse at any moment and for that collapse to transform me? Might I even fall in love with the process? We'll just have to see, I guess. When I told my mother, who's a lung cancer survivor herself, 10 years out, and a pretty wonderfully wise woman herself, about Ruth, that wise woman who was waiting for the party to begin, my mom just knowingly said, Oh, honey, the party's always right now. So be it. <laughs>